I'm going to preach in my Father's Day tie. <laughs> All right. So those of you who caught that, you're on the ball. Uh, I, I have a very uh, special presentation to make this morning. Uh, this is a silk orchid, um, but it's silk so that it can last forever, uh, just like this relationship has lasted many years. Uh, I'm going to present it to them early because they're not going to be here next week. So, Mark, could you go grab Bob? I know he's back counting the offering. Uh, Bob and Diane Strybeck are celebrating 50 years of marriage together <laughs> this week. And, you know, we don't get a chance to celebrate too many of those, uh, particularly in today's world. You know, people sometimes don't even live that long after they got married. So, Bob and Diane, I want to honor you with a rare orchid for a rare couple that made it 50 years. Congratulations to both of you. We love you. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, allowing me also the privilege of being able to be gone a couple Sundays here uh, this month to uh, get restored and recharged at the beach. Uh, some of the best restoration and recharging in the world takes place in Florida, I think. Uh, amidst all that white sand, and uh, Karen and I had the opportunity to, to uh, actually do something we don't get to do a lot, uh, which is uh, go to church and sit in the pew and just kind of soak and enjoy, which is really nice. I uh, got to hear Tully and Chavidian at uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church uh, down in uh, Fort Lauderdale area. And uh, last, last Sunday, I got to sit under my parents' pastor, a guy I went to seminary with. So that was a little different experience, a uh, guy that's my age. Uh, and, uh, and both of those are really neat experiences. You know, uh, Coral Ridge, they have a 40-foot pipe organ uh, and with I don't know how many hundred pipes uh, and an electric violin and electric guitar and all that. And, the, and, and my parents' church is, uh, is very contemporary, and there's no organ of any kind. Um, and, uh, but the Word of God is proclaimed faithfully in both kinds of places, and that was a, that was a fun experience. Uh, so thanks for allowing us time to, to be away and recharge. Uh, I understand that Pastor Jim did his usual uh, good job, and... Uh, Greg Dykstra, I think, is maybe new to you, uh, but uh, also a faithful man in his handling of God's Word, and a and, uh, good thing there. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're blessed to have you this morning. I'm glad that you're here, uh, and if you are looking for a great place to worship God, uh, this is one, and I hope that you will join us and become part of the church family here. Uh, when I left, uh, we had just launched back into Genesis. We had started, uh, went through the first 11 chapters in the early part of the year. And, uh, la and the last time I was here, we had uh, just launched into the story of, Abr of Abram and met him for the first time. And we saw that God gave great promises to Abram, and he was told to lead your country, your people, and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. And we saw that Abram, on the one hand, exercised tremendous faith in going 
uh, to the land that God showed him, but that he only obeyed the command partially because he did not leave his father's household or his people. He took with him his nephew Lot along with his share of his father's household. His father had died, and he took along with him his share of his father's possessions, uh, which included uh, not just livestock uh, and goods, but also slaves that he, his father had acquired. Um, again, we don't have in the Bible plaster saints and perfect people. Uh, they were prone to sin just like you and I. And so Abram did not uh, completely obey God in everything that he was told to do. And it's going to start to have some consequences that are going to come to bear in his life. And we're going to start to see some of those this week. So if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Now... There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Now, if you remember back uh, a few weeks, uh, or if you just read back uh, verse 9, we see that Abram is living in the part of Canaan that's called the Negev. Uh, Negev is a Hebrew word that means south, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's also a word in, that in Hebrew means desert, and dry place, because the south of the land of Canaan is desert and dry. And you can have, have some flocks and herds there, but it's, it's a lot like uh, West Texas. It's dry and hot and flat and kind of a moonscape you know there's just not a lot that grows there and so and the reason that he is living there is because the canaanites at this point are already living in the land and they have already claimed all of the best agricultural and grazing land for themselves and abram remember was not supposed to have all this stuff when he went but he's got all this stuff and now he has to find a way to support it and so he's down in the Negev, which is the undesirable part of the land, and unsurprisingly, there comes a famine. And he doesn't have enough to eat to support all the stuff that he has. And ra rainfall is the source of water in the land of Canaan. The water comes in off the Mediterranean Sea, and it falls 
uh, in the mountains and it waters the area. Well, the, the Negev is on the backside of the mountains, which don't get as much water to start with. Uh, and then it's in a part of the area, part of the country that doesn't get much rain. When we lived in Texas, there's kind of this crescent of territory coming up from Houston that kind of angles its way around uh, toward Texarkana, kind of to the east of you know Dallas and east. And you have that area of the of the state gets a lot of water. Gets there's enough to grow big pine trees, and they have lakes and this kind of thing. If you get west of Dallas at all, it, th there's more grass growing in this room uh, <laughs> than there is <laughs> out there. And it's just dry and hot and dusty and, you know, rattlesnakes and cacti is about what you've got. And it takes hundreds of acres to support cows. And so land out there is, is divided not by the acre but by the section because an acre is not enough to do anything with. And this part of Israel is a lot like that. And he's out of food, and he's got to somehow find enough, enough food to feed his livestock and to feed himself. And so the place to go in the ancient world is Egypt because Egypt is not dependent on rainfall. Egypt gets the annual flooding of the Nile River, and there's a massive floodplain on either side of the Nile. And every year as snow melts out of the mountains to the south, uh, there's this massive flood, and it brings down silt and water, and it washes over this floodplain and fertilizes and waters this, this whole area. And since time immemorial, whenever the world was created and people lived in Egypt, they have planted their crops along this floodplain, and they get water. And so every year you had a reliable supply of food in Egypt, at least normally. And so if you were out of food in Canaan, the place to go was Egypt. So, so uh, the interesting thing, though, is that Abram shouldn't be in this situation. If he had done what God told him to begin with, he wouldn't have the massive need that he has and have to go to Egypt. He's got to leave the land that God told him is yours and go somewhere else. And at some point, while he's on his way, he tells his wife Sarai to lie and tell the Egyptians that she is his sister. Now, you find out later that she actually is his half-sister, uh, the daughter of his father, but not of the same mother. And prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, that was common. In fact, if you go back far enough, in some sense, we are all are brothers and sisters of the same mother and father, uh, Adam and Eve. Amen? Uh, so it's not completely weird that he's married to his half-sister, uh, particularly at an early point in human history. But... It's not, that's not the relevant part that she is his relative. The relevant part is that she is his wife, and he leaves that out. And there's a, a cultural reason for that. It's because uh, in, the, in the Middle East, it's a, what might be called a fratriarchal society. Your brother is your guardian if you are a woman. And your... If you wanted to marry a woman, you had to negotiate with her brother. But if a woman was married and you took her into a foreign country where you were not a citizen and you did not have rights, the local people could and did sometimes kill you for your wife, but your brother was someone that you had to negotiate with. It's a weird custom, I know. 
But that's the, that, so, so this is the scheme he comes up with. And he's thinking, well, we, we only need to live there for a little while, and I'll just drag out the negotiations for long enough that I won't ever have to actually allow Sarai to marry somebody else. I'll just kind of drag this process out until we, we get hungry, uh, and until things are better in Canaan, and we'll go back. Well, so off they go to, to Egypt, and Sarai gets noticed as a very beautiful woman. Uh, I don't know what she looked like. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but rest assured, when the Bible says she was a very beautiful woman, she was a looker. And she gets noticed by all of Pharaoh's officials, and they tell, tell Pharaoh about her. Hey, this, this beautiful gal and her brother are here in town, and you really ought to see this gal because she is something. And Pharaoh, being Pharaoh, does not have to negotiate. Oh, no, flaw in the plan. And so he says, he sends to Abram, hey, like your sister, she's nice. I need her to be part of my harem. And he's Pharaoh. He can do whatever he wants. And so Abram has to surrender the woman he has represented as his sister to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, being Pharaoh, follows cultural custom and sends Abram a dowry. He gives him all of this stuff, male and female servants, as well as donkeys and sheep and cattle. And he, he becomes enormously wealthy. But this is a huge problem, a huge problem, because Abram is putting all of God's promises at risk in what he's done. First of all, what was one of the promises? The land. He's left that. And then God promised that he would become a what? A great nation with many descendants. But his wife is now married to someone else. She's kind of pivotal to the plan to have this happen. Without Sarai, there is no blessed line of descendants. There is no nation. In fact, there is no Messiah. Because God had said that the Messiah will come through you, Abram. And so in exchange for getting rich, he's traded away all of God's promises. This is a big, big problem. And, it's, and Abram is obviously not too distressed because it's not recorded that he actually prays about this. Instead, what happens is God decides that, well, if Abram is not going to keep to the covenant, I'm going to, and he miraculously intervenes. And he brings plagues on Pharaoh and on everybody in the palace, and everybody gets sick, and everybody starts tracking back. Well, well wait a minute. What's different today <laughs> versus yesterday? Has anything happened yesterday that was notable? Oh, yeah, you took that Bedouin guy's wife into your house as your wife, and they, they figure out that this has been a lie. And so, and so Pharaoh confronts Abram. And he says to him, why did you tell me that? Why did you lie to me? To an Egyptian, now this is maybe funny for you, but to an Egyptian, the highest value that they had as a society was honesty. 
And so the idea that you would lie, especially to the Pharaoh, was absolutely unthinkable. But because all these plagues have come on them because of these people, they just want to get rid of them. We don't want to kill them. We don't want to do anything to them. We want to get them out of here. And so they, he says, here, here's your wife. Take your stuff. Get gone. And by the way, he it says that he gave orders to his men, and they sent him on his way. In other words, try to imagine this. This is like if you've ever seen somebody get fired at the office, and they have security come, and they box up their stuff and walk them out the door. Okay? That's what happens. Pharaoh says, you help them go box up their stuff and walk them to the border. Make sure they leave and do not come back. Well, this is semi-somewhat humiliating that you have shamed yourself and you have shamed your wife. I mean, how many of you ladies, don't, don't raise your hand, but but how many of you ladies would think would think well of your husband if he basically pimped you out to another man? That's what's happened. Okay, Abram, the man of faith, has turned into Abram, the man of questionable character. In a relatively short period of time, this is not a good. This is not a good deal. But thankfully for for both Abram and us, God protects. Uh, Sarai, and he protects her from being with Pharaoh as his wife by bringing plagues. And, and the promises of God are protected. That's good. He winds up back in the land. Let's uh, pick up the story on chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. And so Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. And the two men parted company. Abram lived in Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Abram is once again back in the Negev with his wife Sarai and all of his possessions, which have increased since he was in Egypt. And he still has Lot with him. Now remember, he's not supposed to have Lot with him. Leave your people and your father's house. Includes Lot. 
he is supposed to have left all of those folks behind. And he has Lot with him, and the land has not miraculously, since they were in Egypt, become more productive where they are. And so they have to travel. And, uh, and they wind up traveling from place to place till they come to Bethel, uh, which is one of the places where Abram had built an altar to worship God originally. Bethel means house of God. And Abram is back worshiping God, and you can tell because he builds an, another altar there. And his relationship with God, apparently the humiliation in Egypt was sufficient to humble him and bring him back into relationship with God. And that's a, a very good thing. Uh, and the land can't support all of their possessions at that point still. And so Abram makes an offer to Lot and says, well, you know, let's not have any quarreling and fighting between your herdsmen and mine and between me and you. We'll just set off in different directions, and that will help us to maintain peace. Now, according to the cultural custom of the day, Abram, as the older man and uncle, would get first choice as to where they went. And besides that, Abram was the one to whom God had given the land. Remember? It's not to your nephew Lot. It's to you I will give this land. And so according to custom, when Abram said, you choose, the polite thing to do, the, the culturally appropriate thing to do, would then for Lot to say, no, no, Abram, you choose first. And then... They'd have been back, no, no, you choose first, no, no, you choose first, no, no, you choose first. And then it comes back to Abram, and at which point he can politely say, all right, well, I'll choose first. That's the cultural custom. You're not to, on the first offer of a gift, you're not to say, oh, thank you. That's considered rude. But Lot, Abram says, oh, well, you choose first. And he goes, well, all right then. <laughs> and... And it says that the text says that he literally that he lifted up his eyes and he saw this the Jordan River Valley and how it was watered up and how he and he thought to himself in his greed, well, I'll be able to get mine and to take care of myself and my stuff and I'm going there. The problem is, is that down in that area are the cities of Sodom He's going to pitch his tents right down by there. And eventually that's going to lead to his destruction and the destruction of everything that he has. And consider Abram. He is in a fix again. He has his wife and his possessions, but the best of the promised land is no longer his, but his nephew's. Once again, though Abram has given away part of the things that God has promised, God is going to come through. Pick up verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust, then your offspring can be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at 
Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Remember how Lot lifted up his eyes? He saw the Jordan Valley, and he he thought, I'm going to get mine. Here we have a little different description. It's, It's God saying to Abram, Abram, you lift up your eyes. And from where you're standing, you just look anywhere you can see, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, anywhere you can see, I'm giving it all to you. And I'm going to make your descendants like the dust. So if you could count all the little dust fragments all over the earth, that's how many descendants you will have. You will be a mighty nation. What's God doing? God is reaffirming covenant with Abram. He is saying, you know what? I am bigger than this. I can solve your nephew. I can solve Pharaoh. I can solve all of your issues. Because the promises that I have given you are not dependent on you, but on me. And I am powerful enough and sovereign enough and gracious enough to make sure that even through all of your failures and screw-ups, the promise is still going to be good. And he tells Abram, walk through the length and breadth of the land. And it's not recorded that Abram quite does that, although he does move from where he is. And he, at that place, builds another altar to the Lord. And I think that shows that his relationship with God is good at this point. He is trusting and worshiping God, even in the midst of circumstances that didn't go his way like they should have. But God is still providing. And as you look at Abram's story, what I see is a person who is a lot like us. He has periods where he trusts in God and he worships him, even in the midst of tough circumstances. But I also see a guy who often, and this is just one of the first examples that we see, a guy who often fails to trust and obey God, and as a result finds himself in some jams that are largely of his own making. And the thing is, there's a few things I want you to see out of this text, that while God doesn't, is God is infinitely gracious and loving and compassionate to us. He doesn't necessarily eliminate all the consequences of the bad decisions that we have made. He doesn't just say, oh, well, now you've repented, so now we're just going to fix it all. No. Very often, when you repent, your relationship with God is restored, but the mess is a lot of times still there, or at least the after effects of it are still there. And God expects you to trust him in that and through that. He's not going to take you out of it very often. And I see that with Abram because he allows him to experience the consequences of having initially disobeyed. Well, now you don't have any food. Well, now you've got a nephew that you weren't supposed to have. Now you can't feed both of them at the same time. And in fact, he took the best of the land from you, even though it was yours. God allows him to, and just as he allows us, to experience the consequences of our sinful disobedience. And we have to learn then to rely 
and trust on God's gracious provision to get us through the mess that we've made. But there are a couple other things I want you to see out of this too, that first of all, and this is really important, that God's grace, God's grace can reach us even when we are deeply, deeply, deeply in sin. That we can be way out in the boonies somewhere, a long way away from God in our relationship with Him. And God is still gracious, and He still rescues, and He still provides, and He still keeps His promises even then. Uh, I will just go on record and say that lying and then selling your wife into another man's harem are not exactly the pinnacle of moral excellence. Can we all agree on that? All right. Uh, Abram was a lying, faithless, foolish man in what he did with Sarai. And in doing what he did, he put everything that God had promised him at risk. Everything. How are you going to have a great nation with no wife, genius? How's that going to work? How are you going to inherit the land that you don't live in, smart guy? He's doing everything contrary to what God had told him to do. And yet, even in this, God is able to deliver. He not only is able to, but he does. He saves both Abram and Sarai, and the fulfillment of the promises that he made to this faithless, foolish, stupid man are still kept because God is the one who had made them. And I take great comfort from that. I, I really do. Because, and I think you should as well, because here's the thing. Although I have never done anything like what Abram is described as having done. Th in fact, this is a thought that has literally never occurred to me. <laughs> okay. I have done this. I have let my sin run wild at times. And I have found myself in some huge jams of my own making at times. And I'll bet you have too. And I, and I know this that God has been faithful to pull me out of the muck that I have wallowed in. And that's not to say, by the way, that we should just go ahead and sin. Well, you know, God's going to be gracious and still rescue me even if I get myself in a mess. Well, that's not a license to just go ahead and be in a mess. But it is a recognition that we all are subject to sin, and we are, as the hymn writer uh, wrote, prone to wander. Amen? I am prone to wander. You are prone to wander. And the great thing about God's love and grace is that we can never wander so far that God can't still snatch us and pull us out. And that's good. And that's comforting. And that's encouraging. And recognizing that ought to lead us to worship God, just as it did Abram. Remember? After Abram got rescued, what's the first thing he did? Built an altar worship God, because he recognized what God had told him to do. 
Other thing, last thing here I want you to see in this text, that God's promises are not dependent on us, but on Him. God's promises are not dependent on us, but on Him. And this is the corollary of what I'm talking about. Did God know what kind of person Abram was when he called him? Yes. Did God know that Abram would sin and put all of his promises at risk? Yes. <laughs> but was God sovereign enough to work even Abram's sin into his plan and accomplish his will in spite of Abram's sin? Yes. God could account for Lot's greediness, Abram's foolishness and lying. God could account for famine. He could account for anything. It's all working into his sovereign plan to accomplish his promises because his promises are always going to come true, always. And this is the point that I'm trying to make here that I want us all to understand, that God is so sovereign that there is absolutely nothing that we can do which can prevent his will from being accomplished in our life. And he is so gracious that even when we sin, that there is no place we can wander outside his reach. We have been promised, we have been given some great promises, very much like Abram. We have a different covenant than he had, but we have been given some great promises. Let me just list a few of them. We've been promised eternal life. That's pretty good. You know, I mean, who else has got better than that? Not anybody I know. Uh, eternal life. We've been promised, Jesus says, I believe it's John chapter 14, Jesus says, that in my Father's house there are many mansions or many dwellings, many rooms, or however you render that. There are many places to live, and I am going to prepare a place for you. I get an eternal dwelling. I get to be clothed in white. I get a new name written on a white stone that's known to me and to Jesus. I get to eat from the tree of life that produces 12 crops of fruit every month. I get to walk in the light of the presence of God for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. I have some great promises. Amen? So do you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will inherit all these things. And yet, our day-to-day -day experience looks a whole lot more like Abram than like Jesus. Because we are a mess. All of us. Me, you, all of us. We're all a mess. In our thoughts, in our speech, in our conduct with others, we're a mess. And we get ourselves separated from God daily on all kinds of issues. But God is so sovereign and so gracious that he always is going to pull us out. And he's always going to keep his promises. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Jude. Uh, at, at, the, at, the end of, at the end of his letter, he says this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Did you get that? To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before him faultless, blameless, for all eternity. Now, I don't know how you get from point A, where we are, to point B, where we will be. But here's what I know for sure, that God is sovereign and gracious to such a degree that he can transform even me, even you, into blameless, faultless, spotless, kept from falling for all eternity. And that's a great thing. And I see that in Abram's life, and I see it in my life, and one day I will see it in spades. And so will you. And I want to just take a minute just to just to pray and to celebrate the fact that we have such a loving, gracious God who keeps his promises to us, even when we don't keep our promises to him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin that you are sovereign and you work all things after the counsel of your will, and you bring all things into fruition. All of your promises are yes. All of them are kept. There is not one promise you have made which you have let drop, but all of them will be fulfilled in Christ, in us, in eternity. And Father, we have great and precious promises in our salvation in Christ And, Father, we thank you for them. We thank you that you are a God who loves us despite our sin, who pulls us out of the muck that we get ourselves in, even when we don't call out sometimes. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your sovereign power, which rules over and overrules all of our junk. And, Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your Son to purchase us for yourself. We give you praise and we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.